Doritos has had a new ad campaign for this year's Super Bowl, right? I know some of you guys are those actually like love to watch the Super Bowl. Some of you guys are more about the commercials. And so I was fascinated because Doritos has a uh, crash the Super Bowl ad campaign, all right? And what they've allowed customers to do is they've allowed customers to submit different commercials. And then they've allowed customers and web people to come along and vote as to which of the commercials they most like. This guy, I think, has been most liked and will most likely be the one you guys see tonight. So spoiler alert, you're going to see that commercial. A little news flash for you guys, all right? Um, but what I've loved about this is I, th- I think Doritos is, is on to something, all right? They've actually put commercial marketing actually in the hands of consumers themselves. Even Doritos tonight is going to have a 60-second ad campaign, all right? And also about the Super Bowl, what blows me away is that for a 30-second ad spot, it's $3.8 million, all right? That's $130,000 a second. That's crazy. Uh, but Doritos is going to have a 60-second ad, and for 30 of the seconds or for about half of it, they're going to actually have different Pepsi consumers that have submitted photos of Pepsi products that they're going to use as a part of their commercial. And so in many ways, the, uh, Pepsi and Doritos are doing is really putting marketing and putting really the, the pushing and the communication of their product really back in the hands of the very people who are going to consume it and purchase it. I was thinking tonight, even uh, Pepsi released a statement in light of the Super Bowl in which they said that Pepsi consumers want to be active participants and not observers of life. A Pepsi brand communication going from friend to friend is much more powerful than brand to consumer. I think Pepsi and, and Doritos are onto something that's not anything entirely new, but I think they're trying some things even in this year's Super Bowl that are a little bit cutting edge, a little bit taking step uh, even further than anything we've seen before, in which they really are putting communication of their product really in the very hands of the very people who are going to be consuming it. Uh, my wife, Marcy, when she worked for Interstate Batteries when I was doing seminary, she was kind of the sugar mama of our marriage at that time. It was great, all right, uh, making the money, bringing home the bacon while I was in school, all right. But uh, she was doing marketing for Interstate Batteries, and I was fascinated by not just really what actually ads or flyers are created, but by the amount of work that goes into market research, right? And so Pepsi or Doritos will drop $3.8 million, all right, for a 30-second ad spot. But before they've ever done that, they've dropped millions and millions more on market research, right? Before they ever think about how they're going to communicate to their audience, they've begun to really wrestle with what does their, their audience really want? How do they tick? How do they function? How will they respond? Way before they ever show up with a 30-second ad spot that you guys will see tonight, they've spent all kinds of work, not just in, their, in the production of an ad spot, but in market research. Because I think what Pepsi and Doritos has realized is if anyone's going to ever take them serious or hear their message or consume their product, It's imperative that they know their audience. It's imperative that they know the very people that they're trying to get their product in the hands of. I was thinking this morning that Pepsi and Doritos really isn't onto anything new, right? In fact, the very thing that they're going to do and the very thing that they're pushing tonight is the same thing that we're going to see even in our passage this morning in Acts chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 17 this morning. And it's what we're going to see tonight is, or this morning, is that I think Paul got something that Doritos and Pepsi gets. Uh, And yet I think it's something that the church, by and large, has completely forgotten and lost complete track of, all right? That ultimately, that to communicate about something that is valuable, it is not so imperative that you and I think about what we're going to say, but we think about to whom we're going to say it. That really, for Paul, as we walk through Acts chapter 17, we're going to get a passage that is all about evangelism. It is all about the proclamation of the message of Jesus Christ. But what I love about Acts 17 is that it is a prototypical passage that provides a model for how you and I are share our faith. I don't know about you, but at least for me, I think sharing my faith often is a very intimidating, fearful thing. 
You know, the way that Paul, I think, unfolds this here in Acts 17 is incredibly easy to understand, incredibly easy to duplicate, and incredibly easy, and I think effective in our culture today and how our culture ticks, the issues that people are thinking about and the way that people process. I think Acts 17 is a perfect model for you and I as we think about sharing our faith in the culture today. I'll tell you guys, I think the church by and large, as we think about the culture today, I think the church by and large is a voice that has been removed from the scene of culture. The church by and large is absent and silent on major issues today. Why is that? I'll tell you guys, I think in by and large that the church is silent on issues today and they've lost their voice in the cultural square because they've completely retreated from most of the places where conversations are happening. So Christians today have their own schools. They have their own bookstores. They have their own coffee shops, even in this town where all the Christians go, and you know what those coffee shops are, right? We just gravitate to the same places, and we, in a sense, begin to pull back from the world, and we become absent, really, where most people are, where most people are talking. And ultimately, I think as we then show up to speak forth the words of the gospel, I think we're perceived and we're judged in a way because we've really pulled back and we're absent in a way that doesn't communicate that we understand our culture and that we love our culture. I think Paul is going to show us a model in Acts 17 that I think is so helpful for us today to really begin to think through how do you and I present the gospel in our culture today to a culture that is hostile to Jesus Christ and to a culture who frankly sometimes wants nothing to do with the message of good news that we find in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do we navigate in our culture today and how do we do that in a way that is winsome, in a way that is loving, in a way that is well-received? That's where Paul is going to take us this morning in Acts 17. And so if you have your Bibles, look with me at Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. The first thing that we're going to see from Paul is that he is one who I think knew his culture. He took great stakes and was very diligent to know those that he was going to speak to. Look at chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Luke tells us, beginning in verse 16, that now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Verse 16 kind of gives you a little bit of a setup. We know from the earlier part of Acts chapter 17 that Paul essentially was in Athens waiting on some other people who were traveling to catch up with him before he went off on his next stop. So really, he's in a sense just waiting for others to show up before he moves on. So he's really not necessarily thinking anything intentional or has a real plan about what's going on, but he's just kind of in a waiting mode. And in a travel mode. And I thought even as this passage opens, and in many ways this passage, even in verse 16, challenges me. Because I think about the moments that I'm waiting and the moments that I'm traveling. The last thing I'm often thinking about is evangelism, all right? Uh, maybe it's just me, but I know for many times as I pop onto a plane, I begin to try to avoid all kind of eye contact possible so I can leave the seat right next to me wide open, right? I just want some extra space, right? And then when someone actually broaches my personal space and to sit down, I'm beginning to think about how can I bury myself in a book, and avoid the next two hours of awkwardness, right? And so I think in many ways, as Paul begins to respond here in verse 16, I I think it's quite challenging, really, in many ways, because I think Paul is going to see a moment and an opportunity as he waits that I think for so many of us, we just totally miss. Think about those moments in your life that you're just waiting on something. You're waiting on someone to show up. You're waiting on a different life stage. You're waiting on what feels to you like a time that you want to just kill time. Are your eyes open to the opportunities God may have in store? Because Paul's eyes were open. And while I think verse 16 for me is pretty darn convicting because this topic of evangelism for me is a hard one. This isn't something that comes natural for me. This isn't something that just comes easy for me. This is something that for me has a lot of fear attached to it. It feels incredibly insecure about it because I don't feel great at it. I don't feel gifted at it. It isn't for me my comfort zone, all right? And yet, what I love about the rest of this passage, verse 16, is kind of challenging and convicting to me, but the rest of the passage really puts this thing called evangelism right in my hands in a way that's not intimidating, in a way that's really easy to grasp, in a way that's easy to understand. Because ultimately, where Paul will begin is simply intellectual curiosity about the culture of the time. 
The first thing you're going to see Paul do as he steps into this moment at, at Mars Hill in Athens, incredible moment, incredible story, incredible passage. The first thing that you're going to see is that he was intellectually curious about the people that he was living life with. Notice verse 16 again. He says that while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he could have been just killing his time, but notice what he does. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. He's just waiting around and he begins to look around and he begins to notice that the city is absolutely full of idols. <laughs> In fact, he goes on, we're going to see that word observe occurred two other different times. And notice, if you will, with me, verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Verse 23. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. One of the first things you see in Acts 17 that I think makes this so uh, such a standout passage is that Paul, the first thing he does, he steps into a culture, he steps into the world is this. He just begins to observe. He's intellectually curious to know his culture, to know and understand the people of his culture, what they're worshiping and how they tick and how they think. And so as he's waiting, potentially just killing time, he's looking around, he's observing, he's taking in data to understand and to grasp the culture that's around him. I think he wasn't just intellectually curious. I think he was also emotionally curious. Notice again in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. As he's just looking around, in light of what he's seeing, his spirit and his heart is being moved in light of the tragedy of what he's looking at. A city and a culture that was worshiping idols and false gods, his heart breaks and his spirit is provoked. The Greek there is that the idea that his guts are literally turned over. They're just churning because he's so moved. And all of a sudden, his intellectual curiosity doesn't just remain intellectual, but it moves to the emotional. And all of a sudden, the intellectual curiosity picks up all the more, right? You guys think about the times that you're curious about something in terms of knowledge. It is really just purely neutral curiosity, right? It's usually emotionally driven. You don't just pop onto some guy's Facebook profile because you're just curious intellectually, right? You want to know what he's like. You want to know how he's ticks because you're infatuated, maybe interested, have a crush on him. I don't know, right? But that's what happens, right? You're curious emotionally and it moves you to be all the more curious intellectually. And so I think that's exactly what Paul does. His spirit is provoked. And what I love about the story here in Acts 17, though, is that in many cases, I think when our spirit is provoked, as we look at the culture at large, our spirit is provoked with a kind of anger or a kind of judgment that stands external to our culture, right? We stand on the outside looking in, looking in as an outsider, one who's judging, one who is just distancing themselves by the more that they see. I think the church, by and large, has distanced themselves from the culture and the arena of the day because they've stood outside of it in judgment noticing what is not what it should be, and they've stepped external to it, and they've just judged it. What Paul does, though, is I think he's going to have a righteous anger, realizing that they're worshiping what they should not worship. But even more, Paul is going to step into the culture, and he's going to engage the culture, because his emotional curiosity will move to one of conversational curiosity. Notice, if you will, with me in verse 18. And so also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. I think it's interesting as he's intellectually curious, emotionally curious, then he becomes conversationally curious. He begins to engage because he's not just judging and seeing what should not be, but he has a heart of compassion that moves him towards the people and begins to converse with them. And I love the dialogue of the use of the word converse because it's a dialogue. It's a two-way exchange. It's a two-way conversation. 
So much so that you're going to see uh, that they're going to actually ask him to speak. They're curious what he thinks because they know that he's that invested, that he cares about him. Paul, before he ever speaks and opens his mouth, before he ever declares truth, he first starts with observing, caring about him, and then beginning to converse with him. I think the place that he began was in a dialogue that was filled with questions, right? That he wanted to know and understood how his culture uh, thought, how his culture, how this culture ticked, what made them, what drove them emotionally, what they cared about, what they were passionate about, what they were frustrated about, what they were down about. Paul enters into that conversation in such a way that I think it wasn't just that he was entering in into every arena possible, but he was also entering in very humbly. Notice, notice how widely he talks. Notice how widely those that he engages. Back to verse 17, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. So he steps into the religious arena, but not just the religious arena, but also the economic arena and into the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. So he steps into the synagogue with all the religious leaders and he steps into the marketplace with all the business leaders. And then he steps into the philosophical circles in verse 18 to chat it up with them. And then one of the things I love in verse 28, you can see just how widely he was in his conversational practice. Notice verse 28. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said. He was engaging the religious leaders, the business leaders, the philosophical leaders, and he even knew the literature and the poets of their day. He was invested in his culture. He knew his culture. He wasn't a stranger to it. He wasn't an outsider to it. He was not of the world, but he was in the world. He understood his people. He understood the culture at large. I think for so many of us, that's not how we could be described. For so many of us, we stand, I think, sometimes outside of our culture and righteous judgment, but not the kind of judgment that moves us towards compassion so that we engage and we enter in. Paul entered in so well so widely, and I think even so humbly, that he had all kinds of opportunities that we'll see here in a minute because his audience knew that he cared for them, that he loved them, and that he understood them. Obviously, I think when our culture and our audience understands that we know them, that we understand them, and we love them, it's a whole different conversation that unfolds, right? So for you guys, how do you enter into culture? How do we enter into culture to be learners of our culture? Ultimately, I want to challenge you guys to be humble learners, all right? I think Paul was incredibly wide in his engagement, but I think he was also incredibly humble in his engagement. I think his conversation was not just a setup so that he could get to what he wanted to talk about, but I think he genuinely understood and wanted to understand and love and know those that he was engaging with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you do that? How do you become a humble learner who can be in the world but not of the world? Well, let me give you guys two different ideas. The first is a negative idea. The first is it does not have to involve moral compromise. You can understand the culture, you can understand people without having to step into situations or activities in which you become morally compromised. I think for so many of us, we think, hey, if I'm going to have an opportunity to share with someone who may not know Jesus, I need to step into their worlds, I need to live as they do. And for some of us, it becomes an excuse and becomes a situation in which we become morally compromised. And then our voice is not the same kind of voice that we would hope to have as we begin to speak of truth and of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. I think that's a lie that goes all the way back to the garden in which Adam and Eve thought in order to have knowledge, they had to have experience. God said to them, hey, if you eat of the tree, you will die. Satan says, no, no, that's not necessarily true. In order for you to truly know, you have to experience was really Satan's lie. I think for many of us, it's the same today. For you to really know your culture, you have to experience the things of your culture. You have to step into all of the activities and all the things, and that's just not true. You can love the culture well. You can know and love those in the culture well without having to step into situations to be morally compromised. That's not necessary. 
you can live distinctly and still communicate that you love people well. On the flip side of that, let me say what it does require, though. It does require that you become a student of the culture, uh, that you become a student of movies, of the arts, of literature, of music, and, and those different gateway moments that we get a sense of the soul and the heart of our culture. You can do that in ways that do not morally compromise you. You don't have to watch everything. You don't have to listen to everything. But you cannot just retreat from the culture at large and say, you know what, I'm going to take my Bible and my Christian friends and I'm just going to step over here. Because when we do that, we lose our voice and then the world doesn't realize that we love them, we care for them, and we have something that they desperately need. You cannot retreat. You have to engage in the culture. You have to engage in conversations. And sometimes it means you just step across the street, you step across a room, you step across a classroom or a dorm room, and you just engage with somebody. <laughs> you know, I think in many ways, for some of us, we may be in a place where we don't even have that many people that, in our lives that may not even know Jesus Christ. And the reality is, if you think that you're in that spot... <laughs> You're not looking at the classrooms that you're a part of, the dorm rooms that you're a part of, and the people who do not know Jesus Christ. And what would it look like if you engaged them, if you simply stepped across the room and you engaged them not to unload a bill of goods, but you engaged them because you wanted to know them, you wanted to care for them, you wanted to enter into life with them. All of a sudden, the conversation changes dramatically. I think Pepsi and Doritos gets that. That to communicate something, there has to be a relationship, there has to be an active participation in the listener And it is not just us unloading a flyer, a little handbook of truth, or a canned message of truth. But you and I have to step into people's lives with a genuine care to know them, to love them, and to walk with them. And all of a sudden, the conversation takes an incredibly different shape when that is established, because it was established for Paul. This is what I love about Acts 17. He engages his culture in a way that I think the church has completely forgotten how to do, and frankly, is not good at anymore. He steps into his culture to know them, to understand them from philosophy to the business place, to the synagogue, and even to literature and to poets and musicians. He could converse widely with the culture at large because in order to do that, the benefit of that was that ultimately it allowed him to communicate to his culture that he understood them, that he loved them, that he cared for them. And then secondly, the second thing you're going to see Paul do is that it also allowed him to begin to build bridges with them moving towards the gospel. The first thing that you're going to begin to see is that when they actually open the door for Paul and they say, hey, let us know what you believe. One of the first things that happens that I think is amazing is that one, he gets that opportunity, right? (laughs) They knew that they were cared for and that they were known and loved so well that they genuinely wanted to hear him speak. And so they invite him to speak. Of course, they kind of, at the same time, kind of mock him as an idle babbler, a proclaimer of strange deities, but they opened the door and they gave him an opportunity to speak truth in their lives. And when that door opens for you guys, do you know how to step into it? What's the first thing you do? When someone says, hey, I've seen you've been going through a hard thing in your life. Why is that true? Why is it you've been able to walk through that in such a different way than anything else I see? Why is it that you have a joy in your life that I just don't see typically in our day and time? Why is it you treat your professor or your roommates or your boyfriend or girlfriend in a way that is entirely different than anything I see? When those doors open and those opportunities exist and they open up, how do you and I step through those doors and how do we respond conversationally? Paul gives us a great model for this. Ultimately, he's going to build a bridge from what was familiar and common between them to what was unfamiliar and uncommon between them. Paul is going to start really by building a bridge into something, into an area of life that they believed to be true that Paul agreed with. (laughs) An area of common uh, standing really. And then he's going to move there into the gospel. But where he begins is a common affirmation that there's truth that they hold, there's truth that they understand that he agrees with. Notice what he does in verse 22. 
So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. I think verse 22 is always fascinating to me. Paul is going to step into the culture at large and he's going to say to them that you guys are not just religious, but you are very religious in all respects. How in the world could he say that to a culture that was pagan and that had rejected Jesus Christ? How could he do that? How could he say that? How could that be true? I think ultimately what we're going to see as we walk through the rest of the story is that Paul is going to identify in their worship and in their worldview and in their beliefs elements of truth that will be sprinkled out. And he's going to identify those elements of truth that he agrees with. And then he's going to establish a bridge beginning at that spot and moving to something that is more unfamiliar to them. But he's going to identify a series of things that the culture believed that he agreed with. And he's going to move from those commonly held viewpoints of truth and he's going to move on. Ultimately, as we look at culture, as we look at religions, it is not all good or all bad, all right? I think for so many of us, we look at different religions and we look at our culture, we just kind of write it off saying that it is, there's nothing good there. There's a lot of good there in every different culture that exists. There's a lot of truth that exists in every worldview, but not all of it is true, obviously. I think even for us as Aggies, we are all or nothing kinds of people, right? Either you are a good Ag who has, loves all the traditions, or you are two percenter, right? There's no, there's no middle ground, right? You're either a good Christian or you're a pagan, right? That's not, that's not, that's not how Paul sees life. That's not how Paul would have seen the Aggies, all right? That's not how you and I see the culture at large. Paul is going to do something different. He's going to say that you guys are very religious in all respects. So then he's going to go straight to really uh, a bridge, so to speak. He's going to build a bridge really as he's been invited to speak truth. And notice the bridge comes in verse 23. While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So as he's been observing, as he's been looking, as he's been taking in data to understand the culture, to understand what was passionate to them, what they believed, what they understood, he says, hey, here are some things that we can agree on. <laughs> here are some areas that I know that you're concerned about, that, you're, that you believe, and you know what? You're dead on right. There is an unknown God that you worship, and now let me fill you in as to who this is. Paul begins to identify some bridges and he's going to speak toward those bridges as he begins to move people toward Jesus Christ. The bridges for the Athenians were going to be this unknown God. And then we're going to see in the rest of the passage, basically what he's going to do as he begins to build a bridge ultimately to Jesus Christ is he's going to identify areas that they all agreed with. And then he's going to turn the corner and say, but, but here are the implications of that that you've missed. We all can agree that there's a God who is created, but who exactly is this God, right? As you think about our culture today, what are the questions people are asking? What are the bridges that we can build that really are in common standing with our culture that really would set us up and begin to move us toward spiritual truth as we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ? What are the bridges today? I think by and large, people are asking today, (laughs) how do you know truth? Great discussion about how you can search for truth, how you can find truth. Is it in the Bible? Is it in science? Or is it in our experience? So movies, music, literature will go all around those arenas asking the question of how is, what is truth? Is there objective truth? Is there absolute truth? And if there is truth and it is objective, then how do you and I find it and how do we verify it? People are asking questions about truth all the time if you're looking and if you're listening. It's not just questions about truth, but it's also questions about God himself. Does God exist? And if God does exist, then people are asking, what is he like? Is he good? Is he evil? Is he kind and gracious or is he judgmental and wrathful? Is he forgiving or is he just judgmental? Is he personal? Can you know him? Or is he a, a creator who's just created and stepped away? Movies, music, literature, everyone's asking, wrestling with questions of, does God exist? And if God does exist, then what is he like? Not just, I think God, but I think people are asking questions about humanity as well. Who is mankind? <laughs> who are we? 
What are we like? I think huge questions for your generation today. Why did God create us male and female? What is it all about with gender? Why did God create us the way that he created us? And what are the roles he gave us within these genders, within marriage, within our culture? And it has all kinds of implications for sexuality and even homosexuality. Huge questions today about gender. People are asking and wrestling with those issues about who mankind is, about what our purpose is, and about why God created us the way that he created us. Huge discussions there. And I think even more so about, and if mankind is so dignified, if he's so significant, if he's so worthwhile, then why is he capable of such evil, right? Is man good or is he bad? Is man dignified and worthy of respect or is he uh, nothing more than a beast that can do incredibly harmful, evil kinds of things? Who is mankind? Look at movies today. I think you cannot miss the fact that movies today and directors are communicating to you and I that the world is broken, that mankind is broken, and that we can agree on, right? There's all kinds of bridges that you and I can build as we look at music and movies and literature today because people are asking the very questions that are the most essential. How do you find truth? Who is God? Who is man? Why is the world filled with evil? And why is man often the perpetrator of that evil? And ultimately then, how do you fix man? If man is broken, if man has problems, then how do you fix those problems? Do you just counsel it away? Or is there a kind of change and a kind of recovery that can occur that cannot occur through counseling or through medicine? Does God have to step in and do something? What is our hope? And then lastly, I'd say I think people are wrestling with death all the time. You cannot look at the news. You cannot wrestle with stories that are going on of death all the time. And I think it's fascinating that some of the most popular books in the last three to four or five years have been about people's real life experiences or visions of heaven. Someone who died but was resuscitated and they write a story about what they saw, the visions they saw, their experiences between uh, that moment of death and resuscitation, right? People are fascinated with the afterlife. People are fascinated with what is coming next. Is there anything that is coming next? And so people are asking all the big questions. People are wrestling with and want to know those issues and they have opinions and they want to talk. And the question is, will we engage them in a way that they know that they're loved and that they're heard? Or do we just speak over them? Or do we engage them and do we listen and listen well? Ultimately, I think Paul listened well enough that he could begin by building bridges with what was held in common. I think the bridges for the Athenians are different than the bridges today, but ultimately in any of these cultures, people are asking all the same kinds of questions. And they arrive at different answers, and that's when we know our culture well enough to know where are they sitting, where are they standing in regard to some of these questions, and then how do we move them forward? Ultimately, I think Paul is going to build a bridge, but he's not going to build a bridge that goes nowhere, but it's going to ultimately build a bridge that goes to Jesus Christ. I think for many of us, we are great at sometimes engaging people and loving them and listening to them and beginning to affirm what we hold in common. But if we never get to Jesus Christ, then the hope of salvation, the hope of cultural change is completely lost. Many of us are in the business of build bridging, but we just live on the bridge and we never get to the destination that it was intended to get to, which is ultimately Jesus Christ. And so Paul, what he will do here in the remaining verses that will follow is that he will begin with what they hold in common, but then he's going to move to the implications that are different than what his culture holds. But because his culture knows that they're loved, that they're understood, and that they're heard, they can hear it and respond far differently when, they, when those things are established and put in place first. Paul heard them, understood them, listened to them, built a bridge that ultimately then he had no problem differing with them and providing implications that really led ultimately to Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul will do next. Beginning really in verse uh, 24, uh, really he's going to say that ultimately God is a creator, but <laughs> Paul is going to agree with his culture that God was a creating God, but he's then going to differ with them as to the implications of that creation. Notice what he says in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it 
since he is Lord of heaven and earth, which we can agree on ultimately. Paul begins in verse 24 with, I think, a common assertion that his culture and he could hold. That there is a God who is a creator and he's Lord of heaven and earth. Now, here's the problem though. This is where Paul then differs. But this creator God does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands. As though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Ultimately, what Paul does here, I think in verses 24 to 26, is say that there is a God who is a creator, and this we can agree on. But then he has no problem moving on to the implications of what that creating God has to be like. Ultimately, for the Athenians of the time, they had created little wooden idols that they had put up and that they were worshiping. And so Paul comes along and says, you worship a God that you do not know. And there is a God who is a creator. We can agree on that. But the God who is a creator is unlike what you think. (laughs) He's not one that you have fashioned with your own hands. He's not one that you've erected into a temple who lives in a temple. God does not live in temples and he's not served by your hands. Ultimately, he stands outside of the creation. He's above it and beyond it. And he's not controlled, therefore, by you. And so he says, God has determined people's habitations and their boundaries. God is the creator and he is the one who is in control. And so Paul has no problem agreeing with his culture and then moving on to the implications to say, no, 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 there is a creator God, but he's not like you fashion him and like you think him to be. And so he steps on their toes and he disagrees with them. He goes on further and he's going to talk about mankind and he's going to say that we are God's children, but there's something different. Notice he says in verse 27, speaking of mankind, that mankind would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. I think Paul goes right in, speaking of their poets, speaking of their literature, and he's going to agree with them to say that we are the children of God. Though God is a creator, he is actually also near to us. He's not a God who is a creator who's just stepped off and taken off, but he's a God who's created and is involved with his creation and he is close and he can be known. But, but Paul doesn't have a problem again stepping on toes to help them realize, but there's a problem though. We may be like him, but we are not on the same par with him. And so he says in verse 30, therefore overlooking the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. We are his children, but we cannot escape the judgment that is coming because we are not God. We did not create God. We are of a different nature than God. We are not on the same par as the creator God. And not only that, but there's a judgment that is coming. And the problem is there's only one way of escape from that judgment. And Paul goes ahead and lays that out at the end of the sermon here to say, hey, there is a creator God, though we are not like him and we do not control him. Though we are similar to him, we share the same nature with him. We are like him and we are near to him. We can know him, but there's a problem because judgment is coming and we stand hostile to God. And so Paul will say, or Luke will say through here that ultimately that God has overlooked the times of ignorance when they did not understand him. But now they do need to understand Because it has been declared in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection has furnished proof to all men, all cultures, all peoples, that a judgment is coming and there's only one means of escape from that judgment. It's interesting, I think Paul spends the great majority of this sermon and provides you a model that really starts out not with proclamation of judgment, but starts out with a mutual dialogue and conversation in which all parties realize they're being heard and they're being understood 
And then Paul begins to build a bridge based on what he understands of the culture. But it's a bridge that does not just stay in commonality, but eventually moves to the differences that exist with a biblical testimony and with the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that is a game changer. And that is what people have a problem with. In fact, you're going to see the response to his message here in verses 32 and on. And notice it says that when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. (laughs) They mocked him, they laughed, and they just took off. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. And so some stayed and they continued to listen. And then they likely eventually also took off. But some, verse 34, some men joined him and they believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the heir of Pagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. It's interesting. When the gospel is proclaimed, the responses are always varied, right? Some will, even though they know they feel loved, some will say, this is crazy. Some who feel like they've been heard, they will continue to listen because they're engaging in the conversation and the spirit of God is moving them slowly, but surely further and further. And then some will actually respond and believe. Maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ. Maybe you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the message for you this morning is simple. God has furnished proof to all men, all people everywhere through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that judgment is coming and there's one means of escape. Good works will not save you from that judgment. It was necessary that Jesus Christ would come and take on human flesh so that he could come and identify with us, live amongst us, so that he could stand as our substitute and he could receive the penalty and the payment of our sins that we don't have to receive anymore. He stood in our place. He stood in the gap so that we could be forgiven. We could be reconciled. We could be embraced. As children, we could enter back into the family that we were, had been hostile to and separated from. If you do know Jesus Christ this morning, then I think Acts 17 is a wonderful, wonderful model for how we are to engage our culture and for how we are to be about speaking the words of eternal life. It's fascinating. I thought this morning or this week uh, being on campus on Wednesday, some of you guys may have noticed there were some individuals on campus who were trying to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they come about once a year or once a semester. And their method of proclamation is one of judgment, not one of understanding, not one of love, not one of grace. And I was thinking how ironic or how interesting that we would lay in Acts 17 this morning after seeing the week that we've seen of some individuals on campus trying to proclaim the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. And how absolutely contrary is the model that we saw on campus this week from the model that Paul lays out in Acts 17. When you start by common understanding, by a relationship, by an opportunity to be heard and to dialogue, to be known, to be loved and be trusted. And then a bridge is built in which there's a common understanding that's shared that eventually moves to the message of Jesus Christ that does include judgment. That's not where we start. We better end there. We better get there. But that's not where we start. And therefore, I think for many of us, the reason why many have such a hard response to the gospel sometimes is in the way that we go about it and the way that we engage our culture, the way that we show that we care, that we love. And ultimately, I think Doritos and Pepsi understood something that the Apostle Paul understood. That truly, the best way to communicate sometimes is friend to friend and not from a brand to a consumer. (laughs) The best way to communicate is that many people want to be active participants as they hear and as they learn, not just passive, being talked to and being preached at. I don't know if you guys have ever been on a date with somebody that you thought as a first date, you thought there would be a conversation that would occur, but instead of just a one-way dialogue that felt more like an autobiography than it did a date, <laughs> in which you were just being talked at the whole time as if they were the God's greatest gift to you. <laughs> That's why there probably wasn't a second date, right? And I think for many times, I think the church has done the same thing to our culture at large, that we think that we are God's greatest gift to our culture and we fail to really communicate that we need our culture that they have something to challenge us, to share us, and push us towards as well. 
and that there is a mutual ground to understand and to begin a conversation. Now, ultimately, that conversation for us will end with Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the center of our lives and our belief. But it doesn't begin with judgment and it doesn't begin with an external shout without a sense of a relationship and a sense of love and a sense of understanding. Acts 17 is so far different than a date with a guy who's just giving his autobiography to you or a person who shows up on campus just to shout judgment without any context, without any relationship. That's so far different than what we see in Acts 17. And that's so far different than what the church is meant to be. For many of you guys, you may still feel like this whole evangelism thing is incredibly intimidating. So I want to give you guys a few resources that I want to throw available to you guys. First is this, a few quick book resources that I think are phenomenal. One is uh, a guy named Joseph Aldrich, and he writes a book called Lifestyle Evangelism. Great book on evangelism, great book on how to go about sharing your faith. Another book by a guy named Tim Downs writes a book called Finding Common Ground. Again, a great book about bridge building, all right? And then lastly, one of my personal favorites, uh, a book by Bill Hybels entitled Just Walk Across the Room. <laughs> that frankly, the church has segmented itself and pulled itself off. And sometimes all we have to do as a body of believers, as people who know Jesus Christ, is simply walk across the room and our presence communicates love and our questions communicate interest. And therefore, an opportunity and a dialogue opens up that never opens up when we stay retreated, we stay in our coffee shops, we stay in our restaurants, we stay in our schools, and we stay in our own private bookstores, all right? We've got to engage our culture. We've got to step into our culture and begin to speak the words of hope and of eternal life so that our culture knows that we love them and we care for them. Uh, a couple other opportunities I want to make available to you guys as well, not just book resources, but uh, we have an evangelism team here uh, at Southwood. Uh, the, they lead a Bible study with us on Tuesday nights, um, but they also are on campus every Friday taking students like you guys out to share your faith. And so if you've never shared your faith, if you're not really sure how to share your faith, they're there not just to do all the evangelism on the campus, but they're there to be a resource and a training piece for you guys. And so uh, Angela Minnick, who's right over here, uh, uh, and Keen Richardson, who lead those teams, they are great resources. Let me highly encourage encourage you. Find them, talk to them, meet them on the steps of Evans Library uh, from 12 to 3. They go out every hour on the hour, and so you can meet them, pray for them. What's the time, Angela? 1230, all right? 1230 Rudder Fountain, all right? That slide is old with bad information, all right? So thank you, Angela. Uh, meet them at 1230 at Rudder Fountain, and they will go out and share their faith. Great chance to connect with them, go with them. Another opportunity to throw to you guys, Tyler mentioned this this morning, but summer projects, all right? Uh, I'll tell you guys, I have never grown in my faith. I've never grown in my love for the culture, and I've never grown in my confidence with the gospel more than on a summer project. If you're not really sure how to share your faith, you don't have to have it all figured out to go on a summer project, all right? That's the place that you figure it out. That's the place that you really grow. And an ability to do that, confidence to do that, and a love to do that. I still don't feel like I'm most gifted to share my faith. Evangelism is not my greatest passion. It's not my greatest gift. But I'll tell you, Summer Project really, really flipped me upside down in my ability and my love for those who do not know Jesus Christ, my love for other cultures, and ultimately, too, my love for the gospel of what the gospel does when people hear the, the very words of hope and the words of grace, that God would give us something that we do not deserve. That God would give us all the things that he could possibly imagine that not one spiritual blessing in the heavens has been withheld from us if we know Jesus Christ. And the gospel is not just good to get you into heaven, but it's good to transform your life. And that gospel becomes something you become all the more passionate about and all the more in love with. And what we're going to do this morning as we close out this morning is that Tyler is going to come back up and we're going to have an opportunity to let you guys just kind of come before the Lord and wrestle with ultimately what has the gospel done in your life? If you don't know Jesus Christ, then maybe today is the day that you come to a relationship with Jesus because of the gospel, the message of good news that Jesus has died and been resurrected to provide you forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Maybe that's today. 
Maybe for you, it's a great chance to realize afresh what the gospel has done in your life and how God has transformed you. And therefore, the great opportunity you have to speak of that and to share that good news with a culture who desperately needs it and is desperate for that message of grace and of hope. What might God have for you? Who might God have in your life that he's pushing you, challenging you, encouraging you to go love on, share with, and walk across the room to?